From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. Almost a year ago today, our world changed. The Pulitzer Prize-winning restaurant critic Jonathan Gold died of pancreatic cancer on July 21st last year. It was a shock, a tremendous blow to his beloved Los Angeles and readers all over the world. Any account of Jonathan's life can't be told without his close collaborators. As we approach the one-year anniversary of his death tomorrow, I wanted to hear from one of them. He was a fantastic cook. I kind of wish more people knew it because I think that was one of the keys to his writing about restaurants. It wasn't just a spectator sport to him. It was something that he took personally because he knew how to cook. When he was at home or in his office, he was reading cookbooks. And he was reading. I mean, the man read more than anybody I've ever met. That's Amy Scattergood of the L.A. Times. She was Jonathan Gold's editor at the Times and a colleague of his at the L.A. Weekly. I wanted to get her thoughts on the impact of Jonathan's life and career one year later. Hi. Hi, Evan. Happy to be here. Sort of. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I can't believe it's been a year. You spent so much time working with Jonathan on a daily basis at the L.A. Times. How many years was it? Well, at the L.A. Times, I came back in 2014. Before that, I was at the Weekly for many years with him. And then I was at the L.A. Times before that when he was not. But he was a very big presence even in his absence, as he fittingly remains. So a long time. We counted it up once, and I promptly forgot. (laughs) A long time. I mean, for me, I was always very jealous that you were just like in the office next to him whenever you had a thought that could be informed by his thoughts, you could just yell. (laughs) Well, what would happen is that I would be in my office, which was once lots of people's offices, but and his office when he was there was across uh, the aisle or two. But when I wanted to go talk to him, I would just say, text basically, hey, you want a cortado? And then we would wander down to... Uh, Grand Central Market. And that wandering would take quite some time since neither one of us really wanted to go back to the office. And it would basically be lots of caffeine and me listening. The beautiful thing about Jonathan was that I didn't have to say a word. Mostly there was no point. And you just waited and he would just go into all these rabbit holes. It was fascinating. And I just sit there and drink very good coffee and listen. About anything. The Lakers, you know, existentialism, Kant, music, and food. And food. And food. Yeah. I I mean, I think for those of us who were close to him, that's the real loss. I mean, it, it wasn't this box of food. It was so expansive. It was. And, and one thinks about how much one misses him all the time, particularly right now. And I miss him because of that. But also, I miss his cooking. He was a phenomenal cook. And it was just so lovely to go up the street to his house in Pasadena, where you would come often too, as I recall, and just wander into the kitchen. And there he would be. Barefoot. Barefoot, cooking fried chicken. And this week in our paper, we're running the recipe for that fried chicken, as well as a number of different anecdotes about that, but also just... His words. Because the thing about Jonathan is we can all talk about him, 
and we all do, but sometimes you just don't want to hear what we say. I don't want to listen to myself talk about Jonathan. I w- and if I can't hear him talk, then I want to read him. And so we're doing a whole issue basically with just his words on a page. And then there are your segments that you did with him that we can listen to. But sometimes I just want to read what he had to say about the most ridiculous things. Clayton Kershaw, for one. You know. Very funny. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Inside joke, you have to find that (laughs) that interview. (laughs) I mean, I think that for me, definitely, what I miss the most is having some weird thought about whatever and texting him and getting back so much more than I would ever expect. And then when I would see him in person, that conversation would just evolve as if we had never stopped having the exchange. I I remember once, this was way back at the weekly, when he was writing something or I was writing something more likely. And it was three o'clock in the morning, which was very unusual since I don't like to stay up late. But I remember checking my email and there was something about Herodotus and Cinnamon in my inbox from Jonathan to answer a question I think I'd asked him two weeks ago. And it was it was perfect. I mean, who knew? But but. I guess I did then because he told me. But that's the thing about him is he couldn't let any he couldn't let any knowledge pass him by. Yeah, he was very Jesuitical in that respect. Yeah. And he also had this tremendous wit. He had this really sly, sneaky sense of humor. He was hilarious. Yeah. yeah. He was he was hilarious. Do you have any particular memory? Oh god. I mean, other than like his kitchen with him barefoot cooking chicken, the the one thing I always remember about him, or one moment of a zillion and one, is outside um, Red Medicine, uh, now shuttered restaurant in Beverly Hills, on the night of some eclipse, because we have those occasionally. And I probably told this story to you, if not other people. But we'd gone there to eat a whole bunch of food that Jordan Kahn had cooked back when he cooked there. And we went outside. It was like one in the morning. We closed the restaurant. And we were standing there, and he had been talking to me about Beverly Hills High School because he went there, and that was just endlessly amusing. And then there was an eclipse, and then some guy dressed as Jesus wandered across the street in Beverly Hills with a cross. And that's real. I mean, we didn't make it up. He was there because it's Los Angeles. You find strange people in, in weird places. And then some guy came out of the restaurant, too, and was like, hmm, yeah, that's about right. And something about that just was like only with Jonathan. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, for me, one of the key moments was when we were doing our trip to Las Vegas with then uh, Good Food producer Jillian Ferguson, and we're driving into the city, and so we're driving down the strip past these enormous buildings with windows and one of them had was you know these really expensive dresses and he just pipes up about the latest Rodarte <laughs> season <laughs> and, and opinion just flung out and I, I'm like why didn't we mic the car <laughs> yeah oh man I wish that pickup had been mic'd for years and years and years and years yeah that's can you imagine the conversations wow yeah So I know that so many people around the city will be feeling Jonathan's absence, like we are, and uh, we wanted to hear from a few of them. So earlier this week, 
Good for producer Nick Liao stopped by Grand Central Market in downtown L.A., the market that, of course, can be seen in City of Gold, the documentary about Jonathan directed by also a dear friend, Laura Gabbard. When he passed away last year, Central uh, Grand Central painted the street lamps in front of the Market Gold and put up a plaque in his honor, so we thought that would be an appropriate place to hear from others about what they miss about Jonathan one year later. I'm Kevin West. I'm the co-author of the Grand Central Market Cookbook, and I'm an ongoing advisor down here at Grand Central. Well, one year later, what I miss most is just Jonathan's voice. There's no one else who knew L.A. food the way he did, and there's no one else who made us rethink our own relationship to L.A. food the way he did. And he really helped, I think, reposition our whole understanding of what L.A. is and what the unique food that's coming out of here is. He helped us understand that the kind of immigrant cooking that we see here in L.A. is also inspiring and spawning this whole new style of cooking that is so uniquely Los Angeles. And it's like Blade Runner cooking. It's the food of the future. And every time I think about that kind of Blade Runner cuisine, I think about Jonathan and the way that he helped us understand um, that sort of uh, global mashup that's happening here so richly. During the early stages of the revitalization of Grand Central Market, and I'm thinking back to probably early 2013, uh, when Adele Yellen, the previous owner, had just started to assemble her team to put this new vision in place, our first new tenant was Sticky Rice. And it wasn't long after that that we started to see Jonathan Gold and some other folks in the LA Times uh, popping up at the counter there. For us, it was this incredible thrill. It was like, Jonathan understands what it is we're trying to do, and he understands that the real vision here is to keep Grand Central Market as it was, but also to bring it into the future of what L.A. food is now. And the fact that he offered that kind of um, informal imprimatur, let's say, simply by showing up and returning and supporting what we we're doing, it was an incredible validation. And I think it gave us all confidence early on, before the project really succeeded, that we were on the right track and that there was a future here at Grand Central Market that we could see and Jonathan could see it. And we knew that we were going to get to that vision. And here we are now, however many years later. Hi, my name's Nicole Lou Kirshner. I'm at the Grand Central Market because I'm on jury duty and it's the best place in the area for a great lunch. What I miss most about Jonathan Gold and reading his article was that it made it okay to enjoy your cultural food. Like growing up eating Chinese food in elementary school and getting picked on. Now all these people that pick on me are eating my people's food and enjoying it. So I really embrace that. I'm Nicole Rucker, author of Dappled and owner of Fiona Bakery. The thing I miss most about Jonathan is uh, the overall familiarity with Los Angeles and the comfort of having one of your food critics and media people be so accessible to everybody. You could tweet Jonathan on a Tuesday morning I'm going to SGV and I want to get this specific dish, like a Chinese donut with uh, soy milk. I could tweet him and he would respond within a couple hours with two different places and then people would argue which was the best one. And um, that doesn't happen. I just feel like I don't have the same access like I did before. And also the opportunity to see him in person in your restaurant and be not anonymous was really nice and just say hello to him, and I miss that a lot. Hi, my name is Reed Herrick, and I'm the chef owner of DTLA Cheese in Grand Central Market. You know what I think people and myself miss most about Jonathan, he was a great friend of DTLA Cheese, and 
I just miss his nurturing approach to food and the reality of the food scene in LA and what people should take away from dining out and what people should take away from food itself. It's a, it's a lot more than being about what you're eating. It's about what you're putting into your heart and your soul. And I think he was able to capture that in his approach to writing about food and caring about food. You know, he was such a multifaceted man in what he did. You know, it wasn't just about food. It was about music and it was about life and it was about his surroundings and the sounds and the smells and, and everything. So I think if we all have a little bit broader view of what food is about as opposed to who's popular, who's not popular, what's trending, what's not trending, this is about sitting around a table with the people you love and care about. And Jonathan had a way of expressing that to us. Wow. I'm back with Amy Scattergood, who is Jonathan Gold's editor at the LA Times. I want to go back to something that Reed Herrick of DTLH said, how Jonathan didn't chase trends. Um, and I know that sometimes he felt like, oh, I have to go to that restaurant because, of course, I do. But he would be annoyed by it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he always felt that he had a bigger mandate that was about people. How did you see that play out in his just everyday life? Well, I, I can tell you how it played out from a, a practical sort of budgetary level. Like we would have meetings and we'd talk about what restaurants were he should review, maybe. And he'd nod and he'd, and then you could always tell if there was a restaurant that was just too trendy or he really wasn't interested because he'd, he'd say he'd do it and he never would. And, and he had a way of just sort of superimposing what was beyond a trend, what was beyond what everybody else was talking about. He'd, he'd just go sideways. He'd be like, yeah, maybe, but instead I'm going to do this and you're going to like it. And, and we did because it had a way of getting us all to the table and getting us to important tables and not important because some PR agency told us to go someplace or because some chef was on television, but because the food was good and the people at the restaurant were fun and they'd been around for a long time where they hadn't. And you just enjoyed it. And, and it was about that. It wasn't about a job in the same way. And and when those of us whose jobs it theoretically was, was to try and enforce that, he'd just be patient. He wouldn't tell us that he wasn't going to do something. He just wouldn't do it unless he felt it was right. People talk about this void that he's left in the food media landscape. Do you agree? Oh, God, yeah. So where do you see his absence the most? Where do you feel it the most? On the page. I mean, I feel it in in my life because I can't go talk to him at his desk and, and watch him, you know, not write or watch him, you know, kind of stare into space above his laptop, which was a beautiful thing. Sometimes I used to just like keep walking in front of the door without him noticing because it was just so funny. And I miss that, and I miss eating his fried chicken uh, on a regular basis, and I will miss that forever, but I miss it because he was my friend and I worked with him, but I got into food because I wanted to read him. I loved reading what that guy wrote, and that's what I miss. And so I guess that what we can do now is just reread him. The beautiful thing about being a writer is, you know, it's, it's there. 
we can go pull it up. We can go, you know, go online and Google him. We can go to the Times and or the Weekly or wherever, Gourmet, and just go reread his stuff. And and I did that again the other day because we were pulling interesting quotes that he had, of which there were seven million to try and get the most, the sort of the weirdest uh, references that he came up with, which is hilarious. It was a rabbit hole that I, again, got to go down. And and it was very sad, but incredibly pleasurable. Have you seen writers and publications trying to pick up the torch? I've seen writers trying to imitate him because we we all did, whether we knew it or meant to or not. There, I mean, there are wonderful writers writing about food these days. But I don't think that we're trying to imitate him or anyone could or should, but carrying the torch means ignoring the PR stuff and going back to the tables that are interesting and worthwhile and say something about the people who are cooking the food or the people who are eating the food or about our city or someone else's city and just providing a voice for those people, people who often don't have voices, because he did that. That's Amy Scattergood of the L.A. Times. We've been talking about her longtime partnership with the late Jonathan Gold, one year after his passing. Over the next week, we'll continue to remember Jonathan Gold leading up to his birthday on Sunday, July 28th. Next week, we'll be sharing our tribute show to him that first aired after he died. It's a remarkable collection of memories and stories that was nominated for a James Beard Award. I hope you'll join us. Coming up, The Eater website released its long-awaited list of the best new restaurants in the country. And no surprise, a couple of them are here in L.A. After the break, I'm joined by Eater's Hilary Dixler-Canavan. Stay with us. Here Be Monsters is a podcast about, well, it's about a lot of things. It's about faith and doubt, love and loneliness optimism, and grief. It's a podcast about the things that frighten us and the things that we can't get out of our heads. Here Be Monsters, KCRW's podcast about the unknown. New episodes out now. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman. One of the questions that we approached each city about was like, what are the restaurants that were like leading the conversation that were kind of at the forefront of the narrative of the city's year in dining? I'm joined by Hillary Dixler Canavan, the restaurant editor for Eater. She's here to lay out this year's selections of best new restaurants from seas of shining noodles to charismatic taqueros. Hi. Hi. It's great to have you here. I'm so excited to be here. Former roving eater restaurant critic Bill Addison compiled this list in the past. How did you tackle it this year, and did you have a lot of lead time to start? Yeah. Basically, as soon as Bill moved on, there was a big question mark about what are we going to do with Best New Restaurants? Um, And as soon as I was sort of tasked with figuring that out, um, the approach that I took was to sort of move away from the model of having one person do the whole thing. Um, And really, um, you know, the thing that I think makes Eater really special is that we have all of these editors across the country. Our national site in and of itself has a a nationwide staff plus our city editors. So I thought, why not, you know, make it a collective project and really activate that nationwide network of people. And so that's what we did. 
And that way you didn't have to travel constantly and eat everything. Yeah, I think it was certainly perhaps a more humane approach for myself. I did quite a bit of travel. Um, I spent about four months traveling, but certainly it was less stressful knowing that I had a whole network of experts to rely on. Yeah, definitely. And also people that had a, a deep context within their own communities. Absolutely. That's definitely one of the things that I really wanted to make sure came across in the way that we were writing about these restaurants. So let's start on the East Coast, uh, where we'll find Indian on Long Island. Yeah, in Long Island City in Queens. So tell me about Ada. Part of the reason why I think Ada was such an instant, sort of we knew it was going on the list, was that several of our New York City-based staff, that's the restaurant, that's one of the restaurants that just kept coming up in conversations about our BNR list. And I think the thing that Serena Dye, the Eater New York editor who wrote up the Ada blurb in our Best New Restaurants piece, emphasizes is this idea of how the restaurant approaches home-style cooking, how they didn't shy away from the things that made these dishes feel true to that home-style cooking without it being, say, fusion-y or at all pandering And that felt really exciting to our New Yorkers. Just looking at the food on their website, it is things that we've seen before, but done just to look at it. It's very beautifully executed. So the next one that is really interesting is a Korean restaurant, Adamix. Mm -hmm. What they do with presenting the menu is something that immediately must set the tone for the meal. Yeah, I think their design sense and their quite literal aesthetic, I think, is really unique. And I think when you're looking at something like a tasting menu experience where, you know, you're you're paying over $200, you're going for this big night out, I think that their enthusiasm for scene setting in that way is really important. You know, people are there to have a really special experience. So it's this very highly beautifully executed menu of Korean flashcards, I guess you could say. Yeah, the flashcards has been the word that we've been using the most to describe them. So then we move to Comforting Italian in Boston with the Fox and the Knife. So our Eater Boston editor, Rachel Leah Blumenthal, the aspect of the restaurant that most spoke to her was that Boston is not at a loss for Italian food. Obviously, like, there's the entire, like, North End. But here was a restaurant where she felt what was unique was the chef Karen Akunowicz's interest in exploring regional Italian cooking, which to her felt remarkable in Boston. Oh, that's so interesting. I I can see that. That's really interesting. And what about Kopitiam, an all-day Malaysian cafe that's in New York's Lower East Side? So this is one of the restaurants that, as soon as... I knew that I would be working on Best New Restaurants. I sort of had written down as like, this has to go on here. As Stephanie Tudor writes, um, she's Eater New York's senior editor, in a lot of cities, including Los Angeles, but New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, it's becoming increasingly hard to operate casual restaurants without going into a counter service model to keep your labor costs down. So the fact that Kopitiam has that service model feels part of what's happening in dining today. However, they've managed to create this counter-service restaurant that, like, isn't boring, that it's great and it has verve and spirit. And for me, what one of the things I had sort of noticed was that, you know, I left New York well before this restaurant opened. I moved to California in 2016. But 
as soon as this restaurant opened, it seems that every time I go back to New York, I go there. And I think restaurants that make you feel that, yeah, you're at home again, or that they instantly are just part of your rhythm in a city, I think that's a huge accomplishment. So let's talk about the Dallas Noodle restaurant that's on the list. So what I think is really exciting about Cow Noodle Shop is that it shows a part of Dallas's dining culture that is maybe typically overlooked by food media generally. As our Eater Dallas editor, Amy McCarthy, writes in her write-up of the restaurant, Dallas is home to one of the world's largest Lao populations outside of Laos. So to have a really exciting new noodle shop dedicated to Laos Laotian specialties, I think is really special and uniquely Dallas. Is there a, a particular dish you'd like to describe for us? I think the dish that has become known as the must-order dish at Cow Noodle Shop is the boat noodles. Amy writes about it beautifully, but, you know, it's a 24-hour broth, charred beef bones, and it's finished with pork blood. And when you go, as Amy writes, it's the bowls you see stacking up on people's tables. A couple other Texan restaurants made the cut. In particular, Indigo is just fascinating. How do the owners of this 13-seat fine dining restaurant in Houston take on systemic racism just built into their concept? Each course on the menu is tied in some way to a very specific theme. And after most courses, the chef Johnny Rhodes will actually come out, stand in the center of that horseshoe counter, and basically give a monologue um, about mass incarceration or about the Great Migration. I mean, really heavy, weighty things. And he'll explain what elements of the dish that you just ate tie into the historic topic at hand that he wants to address. And this restaurant isn't in Houston's, like, trendy restaurant row area. It's in the neighborhood that he grew up in, correct? That's right. So, of course, we can't talk about restaurants of the caliber of a lot of these places without talking about wine, which also figures prominently on the list. So what is Michael Tusk, who's best known for Quince and Cotonia in San Francisco, doing a bit differently at Verju? just to move across the country. Oh, yeah. I think of Verju as sort of the culmination of a trend that we've been seeing nationwide towards the restaurant as wine bar and also our increasing interest in natural wines. To me, what happened is that Michael Tusk and his partner, Lindsay, basically opened up the wine bar restaurant to end all wine bar restaurants. Their list leans heavily towards natural wines, all of which really thoughtfully pair with the food. And the food is really precise renditions of, you know, kind of classic French and Mediterranean kind of old world Europe wine foods. There was like an amazing pâté en croûte. They bake all their own breads in-house. And, you know, even like the baguette, it's just beautiful. Yeah, it's it's the kind of food that makes you want another glass of wine. Smart. Yeah. <laughs> Funny how they did that. <laughs> You're a pretty recent transplant to Los Angeles. And two of 16 on the list um, made the cut. Um, what, so it's, it's interesting that you chose from kind of low and high. So Tacos 1986 and Nightshade. Why did they both make the list? Yeah, I think one of the questions that we approached um, each city about was like, what are the restaurants that were like leading the conversation that were kind of 
at the forefront of the narrative of the city's year-end dining. And certainly that brings you to to both to both Tacos 1986 and Nightshade. But I, you know, I think the simple answer is, is that as a group, they were our favorite. We have a lot of LA-based staff at Eater, um, both from our national team and obviously Eater LA. Um, so <laughs> there was a lot of conversation about which LA restaurants to choose. And I think as Farley Elliott's write-up indicates, as I, I think I sort of allude to in my own intro into the Best New Restaurants piece, Tacos 1986 really felt like you had to go. And those tacos are great. They're just awesome. So, <laughs> and, and what about Maylin's Nightshade? Yeah, I think what's interesting to me about Nightshade is that that's a restaurant that, you know, it took her a long time to open. There was a ton of hype leading into it. It was a very watched restaurant opening. Um, but the thing that has consistently excited me about Nightshade is that she just takes big swings with her cooking. And I think that's really fun. I think a really good example of this is um, like the Mapo Tofu lasagna, which is one of the most photographed nightshade dishes. Um, It sort of articulates her idea of playing with nostalgic flavors, be they from, you know, Chinese cooking or American classics, or like in the case of lasagna, like Italian or Italian-American, and then going really hard into her kind of technique playbook. Well, thank you so much, Hillary. Thank you so much for having me. That's Hillary Dixler Canavan, restaurant editor for Eater. We've been running down Eater editor selections of the best new restaurants in America. For a link to the full list of those that made the grade, visit our website, kcrw.com slash goodfood. After the break, we turn from the new to the old. Lowry's The Prime Rib is an LA institution. And it's celebrating its 80 years by doing something institutions are not especially known for, changing. Find out how when Good Food returns. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. 80 years old is not too old for a facelift in Beverly Hills, especially if you sit on Restaurant Row on La Cienega. Lowry's The Prime Rib holds fond memories for Angelinos like Roy Choi, Sang Yoon, and myself. And the institution just got another nip and tuck. I see there's such an opportunity to go back to that period of classic dining from when we opened in 1938, probably through the mid-60s, that I think there's just such a wealth of culinary tradition. I mean, it's something of the canon of American dining. That's Ryan Wilson, Chief Strategy Officer of Lowry's Restaurants. He's also a fourth-generation member of Lowry's founding family. As the keeper of the family legacy, he's ever mindful of the delicate balance between keeping classic traditions alive while changing with the times. And changes are afoot. Lowry's just announced a few updates to their restaurants and menu, and I wanted to see what they're up to. Hi. Hello. It's great to be here. So the last time you made changes was when you moved across the street. More or less. We've added a couple things here or there, but the significant change was when we moved across the street, correct? 1993. And you were very careful to keep many things intact, including the steps going down into the dining room. Absolutely. Those were all cues that my grandfather, who was our uh, CEO at the time, and my uncle, who was heavily involved in the design of the restaurant, wanted to maintain. Because all those little cues is how people maintain that emotional content of going to a restaurant. And so 
we thought it was critically important as we moved to a new facility to make sure that those hallmarks were still there. So as Lowry's kids, as part of the family, are you guys brought into sort of the back rooms from an early age so that so many of you will still want to step into the business? The continuity (laughs) is pretty exceptional. Yes and no. I grew up in Northern California where my parents settled. So I would come to Southern California for holidays and things and would always come to the restaurants. I had very fond memories of my time at the Tamashander, our oldest restaurant, and going to Lowry's, of course. But there was never the expectation that I was going to move on to the business. It was always just a fun time to come out to dinner. And frankly, when I was a little little kid, I didn't have a, a strong perception that this was our restaurant. It was just a great restaurant to come to that we came to often. Um, so I think my family's been very good at finding that fine line of establishing that expectation you have to take the business on versus just loving time at the table with each other. So who was behind it when it opened? Who were the the driving force with the idea? My great-grandfather, Lawrence Frank, came up with the idea in, in the late 30s, opened the restaurant in 1938. And to him, he always wanted to have this single entree restaurant that highlighted the greatest meal in America, the standing rib roast of beef. He came from a family of, from the meat business. They had a, a meat company in Milwaukee, and this was something they always had on, on Sundays. All of his friends at the time, I mean, he, he, his primary business at that time was the Vandy Camp Bakery. And so he always wanted to open this restaurant. All of his friends in the food business said he was crazy uh, to have a single entree restaurant. So he actually opened it with a full a la carte menu. And six months in, he was right. He eliminated all the other entrees and just went down to the prime rib. Okay, and now... <laughs> And now, uh, 80 years later, we're opening it up again. And, you know, I think we look back and I think that run of the truly single entree menu lasted until we added fish and lobster and then a vegetarian option in the the mid-90s. And now we look at it and I think that, to me, I see there's such an opportunity to go back to that period of classic dining from when we opened in 1938, probably through the mid-60s. That I think there's just such a wealth of culinary tradition. I mean, it's something of the canon of American dining. And for Lowry's and for our family, we have such a great history in that period of dining, both at Lowry's and some of the other restaurants that our family operated in Southern California. So, It's funny because as a native, Angelina, I do what a lot of people do, which is every time I go, order the exact same thing. Because <clears throat> since I've left, I'm thinking about going again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, you have a craving, right? It's yeah, a meal that a that flavor profile and the texture is very specific. But I have to say that the one item the new from the new menu that I tasted that was just surprising to me in that I know I would order it again, and that was the cauliflower steak. That's fantastic to hear. It was a dish that we had been focusing on and working on for about a year and a half. And we were trying to find that balance between just... Uh, adding a vegetarian option for the sake of adding a vegetarian option because we know we needed to you know, address people's dietary issues and, and requests. But we also wanted to have something that was truly an entree, that truly would stand up to a Lowry's cut. So we, we developed the cauliflower steak and, and its specific seasoning process, but also wanted it to be light. We wanted it to have a vegetable component and still be robust. So I, I think we found that balance. You know, When I was a little kid, um, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. So I always had to wait until I got invited by a friend's parents to come along, like for a birthday celebration or something else. And one of the things that I loved so much about it was the spectacle, Mm -hmm. the rolling cart, the, the waitresses in their outfits, 
We talk a lot about the theater and the show, and that's a huge piece of why people want to come to Lowry's. And and every and because it's almost scripted in a way, every little change, every little nuance you notice. So when the dressing business was sold, mm-hmm. the waitresses went from shaking the <laughs> bottle above their heads before they poured the dressing into the spinning salad to pouring it from a cruet. Yes. You're very perceptive, Evan. <laughs> and now and now the the brown gown as it's called yes has been reworked it has why um did you decide to do that we looked back at the history and saw that in reality the brown gown as we affectionately refer to it had changed multiple times and yet in our current perception it had not changed at all because it hadn't changed since the probably mid 60s early 70s and we looked at it and and frankly we thought it was an opportunity to just make it a little bit more elegant bring it forward um, the fabric itself had become uh, lower quality than we wanted. It wasn't wearing well. The servers were complaining about it. And through the evolution of our time working on this revitalization, we listened very closely to our guest. We did a number of focus group work and heard that there was a polarizing reality around the brown gown and thought it was an opportunity to make some some improvements, some enhancements. Knowing full well, there's a lot of people out there that that truly believe don't touch it. We think there's an opportunity to do something that gives a little more elegance and a little more refinement to the dining experience. Are servers ever hired like from the street or are they always promoted from within from another position like hostess or? Uh, we will hire from the street, but it goes they go through a rigorous training program and it is a, uh, a very competitive um, job to get. Uh, we recently put out a posting and had over a hundred uh, resumes within a number of hours. Um, it's a great job. It's a great job. And and you could tell that they love their job. They're, it, they're some of the loveliest people ever. And we are so proud of uh, that coworker culture. It's one of the tenets of our, our business and, and who we are at Lowry's. Uh, we have servers that have been on the floor for 30, 40 years. Uh, and that's an incredible piece of our company. So a lot of people don't realize that, I mean, we look at Lowry's now and it's such an institution that we don't think of it as being on the cutting edge of certain things. But you were the first people to introduce valet parking. Yes. And the doggy bag. And the doggy bag. It's a big meal. And and my grandfather, I think it follows on from the idea of it being the Sunday roast, that he always wanted to have leftovers. And that was a, a piece of our family tradition back then, and it's a piece of our family tradition today. And why not dress that up? And I don't know where the name came from, other than you're probably serving your dog the bones, but the doggy bag is part of our tradition for sure. Yeah, I brought a bone home to the dog and I'm not supposed to give him bones, but I gave it to him. And then I realized he had had enough and I tried to get it away from him. (laughs) Good luck. (laughs) My little fluff ball was so mean. I had to go get tongs from the kitchen (laughs) to get it away from him. I'm so curious about the seasoning salt. Yes. How did that come about? Who developed it? Why was it felt that it was needed? My great-grandfather developed the seasoned salt specifically for the table at Lowry's. He had cooked a lot of prime rib and done a lot of testing, and I think he quickly realized that the standing rib roast and how it's prepared, that center of the meat is never going to get any actual seasoning. So he wanted to have something on the table that could add seasoning to it. Frankly, the majority of the flavor profile in that dish is coming from the au jus. So he created the Lowry seasoned salt just to go on the table. And it wasn't until the late 50s, mid-50s, that my grandfather, Richard Nathan Frank, 
came to work at the Vandy Camp bakery business and quickly realized that the bakery business was very challenging because it had all sorts of issues with the labor population and with perishability, he quickly realized that the seasoned salt was everything that the bakery business wasn't. People loved it. People were stealing it off the table. He knew that that was a product that was great demand, but it also was something that was not perishable and that he could really develop a great business around. Are you related to the taco seasoning? So that was part of the business that my grandfather created. He started with the the humble little seasoned salt and grew that into a, a big business where taco seasoning and spaghetti seasoning and the dressings, that was a, a, a big piece of the business that he eventually sold in 1979 to Lipton. Wow. Indeed. What's your order when you go? My order changes between who my carver is and, and what my purpose is in the restaurant, frankly. Uh, I, I have become a big fan of the English cut. And so I, I, I'm now been in the business for uh, about 12 years. Um, for 10 of those years, I was the corporate chef. Um, so I'm a chef by training. And so I'd come into the restaurants and I'd have to evaluate our carvers. And the, the English cut is very tricky. Three thin slices of prime rib. Um, and so no I, bone. No bone. I initially was ordering that to check our carvers. And then I really developed a taste in, in, for the texture prim- primarily. Sometimes, however, a Lowry's cut is where you have to land. And, and every time I, I have the Lowry's cut, there's a reason why our name is on it. And you get the bone. And I, I've developed all sorts of great leftover dishes to do with the bone. And I think hands down it would be my favorite. But I end up opting into the English cut often as well. Yeah, it's really amazing. Whenever I get the Lowry's cut and I take the bone home with meat attached, I know I'm looking forward to tacos. Okay. <laughs> Some kind of stir fry. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like the meal that keeps on giving, I have you, to tell you. Another great one, you can make a beautiful broth out of it. I've made some delicious pho out of a, some Lowry's beef bones. And just a simple simmer and add in, you know, the appropriate seasonings, a little fish sauce. It's fantastic. Wow, what a great idea. I have to do that. Hmm. Let's talk a bit about the decor, because the menu wasn't the only thing to change no. and, the, and the brown gown. The restaurant is big. I mean, it's 450 plus seats. And so the room sometimes can feel a bit like a, a, you know, a mess hall. And so by lowering the lights and creating a little bit more mood at the table and a little bit more sparkle in some of the finishes, we were really hoping to enhance that, that cozy factor. It's such a fun place to go. I mean, ever since I walked out, I'm like, oh, I want to go back. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for coming. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's Ryan Wilson, Chief Strategy Officer of Lowry's Restaurants. To check out their new expanded menu, visit lowrysonline.com. After a short break, we're going down to Long Beach with LA Times restaurant critic Patricia Escarcega. Stick around to find out where. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Now for a visit with Patricia Escarcega, LA Times restaurant critic. She's here with a new review. Hi, Patricia. Hi, Evan. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled that you're here, although I know I will be very hungry (laughs) after our conversation. Um, What are we eating today? Today we're headed down to Long Beach. Uh, More specifically, we're going to the Long Beach Exchange and the food hall called The Hangar. And we're going to a little fast casual window called Amorcito, Mexican fast casual spot. And is Amorcito the place that kind of has built itself as pocho cuisine? That's right. So the chef there, he's a very well-known Southern California chef, uh, Chef Thomas Ortega. And food writer Bill Esparza, I was told, coined the phrase pocho cuisine, which is really a marvelous phrase. And it captures the spirit of what he's doing there. 
what is a pocho? So a pocho, if you didn't grow up with the word, it's a kind of, it started as a pejorative in the 20th century. It's a word that was used to describe Mexican-Americans, specifically those who were seen as losing their culture. And a lot of times that was measured as not speaking fluent Spanish, maybe. And instead of letting it, you know, stay as kind of like this negative thing, a lot of Mexican-Americans have embraced the term over the years and have kind of turned it on its head and turned it into something really, you know, a source of, you know, humor, strength, solidarity. So it's an interesting concept, and it's something that's especially interesting when applied to food. So take us through the menu. Yeah, the menu is really taco-intensive. <laughs> so you're in we safe We love hand. that. Yes, no, no problem there. So if you love tacos, um, this is one of the great new taquerias in Long Beach. So you definitely want to go try it. There's a lot of snack foods. He does really good chicharron. He plays a lot with fries, kind of mashing together American fast food with traditional Mexican food. And then... We have to talk about the taco salad. So when you say the words taco salad, it brings <laughs> a problematic eater to mind for many people. But this is a taco salad for us. Yes, this is a taco salad for those of us who maybe have had not so good versions and maybe in school cafeterias. You know, it's an old mid-century Mexican-American dish, has not gotten much respect over the years. And at his restaurant, um, the chef really has fun with kind of elevating the taco salad and ennobling it a little bit. He does a really nice kind of, I call it a chefy take on the salad. He has organic greens. He's got chickpeas. He's got, you know, fresh Mexican cotija cheese kind of sprinkled on top. It's really crispy. It's really crunchy. And the most probably uh, funny thing or interesting thing about it is how big it is. And the shape. The shape. So usually a taco salad comes in a giant taco shell. So this one, he makes his own taco shell, but it's in the shape of an enormous taco. It's roughly the shape of like a football, I would say. And you carry it out from the counter and you get funny looks. And I was stopped at least twice. People Were you are, really? Yes. Um, what is that? What are you eating? <laughs> <laughs> and you tell it's a taco salad. <laughs> so, taco salad as big as your head. As big as your head. Good luck finishing it. I wasn't able to finish mine. Maybe bring two people, I would say, <laughs> to help you eat this one dish. I don't know. The photograph in the review looks mighty fine. Yes. It's a, it's a great taco salad. And, and part of it's... Uh, you know, appeal is just how funny it is. It's so cheeky and it's a great dish, but it also has a sense of humor behind it. And, you know, how often do you find those two things kind of converging? Not very often. So does he do any kind of nacho situation? You know, I did not have the nachos there, but he does have a really good burritos. Again, burritos, one of those kind of norteño, Mexican-American dishes that don't get a lot of respect. He makes great al pastor burrito, great carnitas burrito. I'm really fond of his, calls it the bean y queso burrito. Just great flavor. And you get this whirl of melted white cheese. The tortillas are all made in-house. So they're really soft and powdery and kind of you know, just palpably fresh. You look so happy right now talking <laughs> about this food. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Patricia. Thank you, Evan, for having me. 
I've been talking with LA Times restaurant critic Patricia Escarcega about Amorcito by Chef Thomas Ortega in Long Beach. You can find a link to her LA Times review at our website. That's kcrw.com slash goodfood. And now, the market report. Jillian Ferguson is at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market with the goods. This is Jillian Ferguson with the Market Report. We are back in Santa Monica this week, and we're here with Josh Pressman and Jihee Kim, who are the co-chefs behind Dondi, a pop-up that has been popping up around town for a couple months now. Josh, you have a new pop-up coming up in Koreatown. Where and when can we find you? We are popping up at Hotel Normandy in Koreatown. July 26th and 27th, and August 2nd and August 3rd. Great, and so Dondi is a tasting menu of either contemporary, modern Korean food, inspired also by the Southern California farmer's markets. Um, and today, I understand you were shopping for corn. Yeah, we were, uh, we were on the lookout for corn, and we found it at Finley Farms. It's uh, obviously sort of the quintessential summer ingredient, aside from tomatoes and stone fruit. It's just super naturally sweet. We like to use it in a really unusual way. So describe what you mean by unusual way. Because when you talk about tofu, we usually tofu made out of soybean. And Josh always have this crazy idea. And he always said, let's do something different. So we're talking about how we're going to make tofu, but not so tofu. Like, it is tofu, but not with soybeans. We actually try with many different kind of vegetable. We try with peas. Yep. <laughs> the color was, <laughs> it came out a little weird. What else we try? Uh, we try actually other nuts, too. Like, we try hazelnut. Actually, it came out good. We used it for our first pop-up. And this is corn season, so there's one day we talk about, oh, what about corn? Because corn's sweet and it has a starchy, so it's gonna coagulate just fine. Mm-hmm. So we just try it and it actually worked pretty well. We loved it. It has like good amount of sweetness and then like texture was great, custardy, pudding, just like a tofu. So that's how we decided to do corn tofu. What is the process of making (laughs) corn tofu? Yeah, so uh, this is the unusual part. Well, we take the corn and we uh, take all the kernels off of it. We cut all the kernels off of the cob and uh, juice them and take that resulting juice and you heat it up with uh, one very unusual (laughs) gelling agent, which which is is naturally occurring. It's called agar. So it's a seaweed-derived powder. Uh, The gelling is activated by heat. We actually bring the corn juice to a boil with the agar powder and a little bit of miso paste to sort of bring out the idea of it being tofu because otherwise it would just be like a sweet custard without really any savory qualities. And we heat all this up and bring it just to a boil as to activate the agar and set it in ramekins uh, on top of Dungeness crab meat that's uh, seasoned with furikake that we make. Describe what furikake is. It's just like other furikake, but we want to make our own version. So we add a dulce with gochugaru, lemon peel, we just dehydrate it and then make it to the powder. And uh, this not so Asian ingredient, but I use uh, shumak, 
Sumac, oh, yeah. okay. Because <laughs> uh, I wanted to add some sort of a red shiso powder, but it wasn't around. And then I remember a long time ago, I was talking to my uh, one of my Japanese friends. She mentioned that sumac tastes a little bit like red shiso flavor for her. So I remember that conversation. I was like, oh, maybe I should use the sumac. So I use sumac and garlic powder, onion powder, mushroom powder, and salt. Just mix in. And oh, sesame seed, yeah. And so is the tofu garnished with anything? Yeah, the uh, tofu is garnished with a uh, browned butter. So it's nice and nutty. It draws out some of the sesame seed and the furikake seasoning. So this is one of how many courses as part of your tasting menu? It's one of eight. Uh, we have a small section at the start of the meal that we lovingly refer to as snacks. It's like one of three or four bites in that first snacks course. Mm -hmm. Okay, so tell us again where we can find you for this upcoming pop-up. We're doing a, Norman, a Hotel Normandy in Koreatown, July 26th and 27th. And August 2nd and 3rd, those are Fridays and Saturdays at Hotel Normandy in K-Town. All right, and you can also find information on your website, which is dondi-la.com. Josh and Jihee, thank you so much. Thank you, Jillian. Thank you. Thank you. That was Josh Pressman and Jihee Kim. They are the co-chefs behind Dondi, a pop-up that's coming up soon at the Hotel Normandy in Koreatown. Mike Roberts is a farmer with McGrath Family Farms. And Mike, here on your table, you don't have the full sweet corn yet, but you have the most adorable baby corn, which some of them are no longer than the size of my pinky, I would say. Tell us a little bit about how you get baby corn. So we grow particular variety. There's a particular variety called Robust, uh, even though that's kind of counterintuitive there. It should be a large variety, but it's this small, really mini corn. And a lot of credit goes to the market and the chefs that we work with here for really pushing us and teaching us what they like, these unique types of items like this. And then Phil McGrath, of course, who's my mentor, and Paul Thurston, another mentor of mine, really taught us how to grow these kinds of things there on the farm. So it's just like any other kind of corn. It's just a particularly small variety. Obviously, it's ready a little earlier. I haven't seen anybody in the market with it this year, but we've been growing it historically for, I'd say, at least a dozen years. And so if you left some of this robust corn on the plant longer, would it ever grow to an adult-sized corn? No, it's, it, this variety is particularly for baby, so it will never get like a full cob. So we try to pick it right at that finger-sized. Yeah. Yep. And when you say there's no cob, it means that it's tender all the way through, so you can eat the whole thing. That's right, exactly. That's what's unique about it. You don't eat it like a corn on the cob. You actually, you can just brown some butter, toss it around in there, and eat the whole thing, cob and all. Yeah. And you don't even have to cook it. You could actually, in the field, we eat it raw all the time. Really? Oh, yeah. Just eat it just like that. I overheard one chef is actually barbecuing these little guys. Yeah, that's another thing they teach us out here, what to do with all this. So I always tell people we're more, definitely more farmers than we are chefs, and the chefs will teach us as well as other customers that are buying these uh, baby corn. They'll teach us what to do with them. So barbecue, saute, steam, stir fry. But my favorite way is to brown that butter and then just toss them around in that. Mm -hmm. And uh, how long do they take to grow to get to this little baby size? Probably about 75 days. You know, depends on the, the weather. It's been a cooler summer for us so far, a lot of overcast. We've had the June gloom even carrying into July, so they'll take a little bit longer, but around 75 days. When you're standing in a field of baby corn, how tall does it get? What does it look like? 
So the corn itself, the stalk looks just like regular corn. It's just when you go to harvest it, it's tiny, right? So it's just like regular corn, uh, which we don't really grow. It's hard to grow regular corn for us. We had to move to this variety. The larger size corn gets the worms in it historically, so it's, it's very tough to market that corn. One of the reasons we did go to this baby corn, so it grows faster, but it looks just like regular corn except for it's tiny. You know, the, but the stock itself is normal. And how long do you think you'll have them here at the market? Uh, we try to have steady supplies, something else the chefs have taught us. They want to have it regularly and also our home chefs. So we try to have it throughout the summer and fall blend together here in Southern California. So we've had it in some years all the way up to Christmas. So, But our goal is generally Thanksgiving. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mike. Yeah, anytime, guys. Thanks. Thanks for asking about it. <laughs> that was Mike Roberts with McGrath Family Farms. You can find McGrath and their baby corn at the Wednesday Santa Monica Market, Thursday South Pasadena, and Sunday Hollywood. For The Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. That's it for our show this week. As always, if you missed any of it, please listen on our website or on KCRW's mobile app. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. And as always, please leave us a review. It makes our day. My thanks go to the Good Food team, Nick Liao, Laryl Garcia, Joel Stein, Joseph Stone, and Ronnie Mickelson. Special thanks to Laura Kondarajan, Amy Ta, Kenny Ng, and Paola Mardo. I'm Evan Kleiman. Be sure to join us next week to revisit our tribute to Jonathan Gold. 